Hello and welcome to Saga Briefs, where we talk about the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Welcome back to our occasional series on the context of saga literature. And in this episode, which is Saga Brief 22, I think, well, it's kind of marking a milestone for us. <laughs> is it? I don't, I don't know if it's a milestone. It's really more of a millstone. <laughs> that's, that's actually a really great way of thinking about it. Uh, but the point is, we're finally going to talk about something that we've been promising for what must be a few years now. Beowulf and Gretter! <laughs> no, 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 not, not that one. The final episode on the Ragnarsons! <laughs> so, so these are... You're, you're highlighting the ones that I've promised. and uh, The Beast of Yucca Flats. N- no, I don't even know what that is. It's, don't worry about it. Uh, no, this, edica- this episode is dedicated to something near and dear to our hearts here at Saga Thing. Drinking. It's our episode yes. on Saga Age Drinking. Hallelujah and pass the beer nuts. John, why is this taking so long? I seem to recall every year as we're on our way to Kalamazoo, you say something uh-huh. like, we could record our drinking episode. I've almost got that done. Right. Why well, don't we do that? The problem is we kept getting distracted with practical research of our subject. <laughs> practical research, yes. Not only do I believe it, I, I have seen and participated in that. Uh, there's, uh, a, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. No, but honestly, this is just such a huge topic that it felt a bit strange to try to get it into an episode. I, I kept finding more things to read, another book I needed to track down. There have even been a few relevant archaeological findings recently. So, in other words, you were stalling. I was researching, Andy. <laughs> Occasionally by drinking a beer and watching a Mets game. Yes. Uh, but uh, this really is a topic that we've been wanting to tackle for a while. And we've used the saga briefs to cover religion. Torture, violence, archaeology, current events, culture, all big and important subjects. Mm -hmm. So we thought it was high time we spent time on something a little calmer, a little more social, a lot (laughs) more alcoholic. (laughs) Exactly so. And unlike home-going duels, Viking raids, and non-historical torture methods, drinking is a subject we have first-hand experience of. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, we ended up doing a deep dive into this one. So it was so deep that this is going to be a two-part brief. Just couldn't capture your love of the subject in one episode, could you? I'm committed to my work, Andy. Well, God so bless you. In, in this episode, the one you're listening to, we will be discussing the things that people drank in the saga age and in the saga writing age, right? how they made their alcohol and what they drank. Okay. Part two, which will be recorded and released soon, will cover the culture of drinking. The things Vikings drank from, the reasons they drank, what they did while drinking, the significance of alcohol to their lives and worldview. All the other stuff. All the other stuff, yes. Sounds to me, I mean, based on the list you just created there, uh, we might end up with three episodes on this. Nope, nope, nope. Two is my limit. Well, I don't think anyone would mind multiple episodes on this, but uh, (laughs) this is a, you know, this is a subject that people have been wanting to hear for a while. Well, we kept promising to do it. I know, but uh, John, I recently posted to the Discord group about what they'd like to have for this next brief, and uh, there were quite a few comments on drinking. That was the winner. So, wait, so this was a listener request episode? Well, sort of. So you've all betrayed me, have you? <laughs> no, no, we're both doing this. Uh, uh-huh. hey, speaking of which, uh, we have a Discord community now being mm-hmm. run by a group of listeners. Um, you can tell because it's competent and well done. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to join in, check our social media and you can find the link to the Discord there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's not that hard to use. Uh, even I managed to get on there and function more or less competently with minimal fuss. Right. And like we said last episode, that's really saying something. Saying a lot. Uh, so 
we're going to talk about drinking and drinking culture in the Saga Age. Well, yes, but uh, I think we'll be ending up pushing beyond the medieval source text uh, just a little bit. Uh, Drinking Mm -hmm. is a topic that comes up in a lot of pop culture about the Vikings and the sagas, which is part of why we've been talking about covering it for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, there's something about the spot in our imagination where Vikings live that seems to require the presence of massive vats of beer and mead and big beardy guys drinking themselves into insensibility, (laughs) quaffing and whatnot. Sure, yeah. Drinking horns, giant wooden mugs. As we mentioned before, there's even a persistent myth about Vikings drinking from the skulls of their enemies. Right. <laughs> it's it's almost as if people can't conceive of axe-wielding Scandinavians gathering in groups without adding alcohol to the mix. Mm-hmm. When you might reasonably think that that's the last thing you'd want to add to a room full of armed Vikings. Well, this is also a feature of the recent movies and shows about the Viking world. Even parody shows like The Brilliant Norseman make a point of regularly referencing or featuring drinking sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, one of the standard set pieces of the History Channel's Viking shows has been the drinking session parties thrown by Ragnar and his fellow earls and kings. Yeah. Um, and that, by the way, this just moves right into the modern day. I don't know about you, Andy, but uh, there are now three or four different axe throwing bars uh, within a 20 minute drive of my house. Oh, yeah. Places where you can just go, throw axes at things, and drink. It's essentially, again, people who think this is how you prove that you're manly in the Viking way. How many beards do you think you see when you go into one of the axe-throwing places? Oh, I intend to find out. Oh, you haven't done? Okay. <laughs> no, I haven't I haven't been yet, but I'll do a, re- I'll do a research trip, Andy. Okay. I'll report back with my findings. That sounds good. Uh, and we have to say, we should say, this is not just a modern prejudice. Uh Consider the words of Tacitus, writing about Germanic culture in the first century AD. Their food is of a simple kind, consisting of wild fruit, fresh game, and curdled milk. They satisfy their hunger without elaborate preparation and without delicacies. In quenching their thirst, they are not equally moderate. (laughs) If you indulge their love of drinking by supplying them with as much as they desire, they will be overcome by their own vices as easily as by the arms of an enemy. So you conquered the Germans by getting them drunk. Is I mean, that the key? You know, like if you got to be conquered, huh? Well, it's certainly pleasanter than the Romans' usual methods, i got to say. True. <laughs> so what we're doing is mostly a conversation about the representations of drinking culture in the era of the sagas, uh, which means knowing what they drank and so forth. But it's also going to be partly just us talking about the things that other people, contemporaries of the, the Vikings and modern pop culture, think about when they think of drinking in the Viking world. Well, we should say that there's a fair amount of extrapolation that goes into talking about alcohol in, say, medieval Iceland. Ooh, that's a very fancy way of saying guessing. Yes. Uh, but it's also correct. Our archaeological and historical knowledge of drinking in medieval Scandinavia is frustratingly incomplete. Okay, but it's not all bad. We are working from evidence. It's just that the evidence pretty frequently reflects what people wanted life to be like rather than what it was actually like. Mm-hmm. And it can be tricky to separate the facts from the fantasy, something, frankly, anytime you're reading something like the sagas is going to be hard to do. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, for example, social events in the sagas are sometimes treated as if extravagant amounts of alcohol were consumed as the norm. Norm! norm! I really hope that's going to be our only dumb cheers joke. Oh, don't get your hopes up. But uh, yes, (laughs) the images from medieval-themed movies and television, they usually show drinking as a raucous activity, pretty much the way frat parties are portrayed in films, but with bigger beards and more axes. Ooh, 
See, now I can imagine a group of Vikings playing beer pong with drinking horns and an eyeball. Uh, can we get a Kickstarter up and running on that? Because I, I might play that game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, somebody make that game, please. I want to play it. <laughs> so uh, you were talking about misrepresentations of drinking culture. Right, right. Uh, anyway, as we'll see, the reality is that alcohol was sometimes hard to come by. And when it was available, it's not necessarily what people tend to imagine. Yeah, that sounds like you're about to launch into this thing. You ready? I was planning to, yeah. Okay, well, but before you do, there's one more thing from the Discord group. People want this episode to be some sort of drinking game. Um, for us or for them? I really don't know. Both? Well, I'm not going to tell people when or how to drink. Um, there's probably any number of things we do a lot of that could be the basis of a drinking game. Uh, I don't really want to think about like what my own uh, ticks and quirks are. I feel like I'd get too right, self-conscious. Exactly. Uh, but I'm sure you all know what they are. Personally, uh, I'm enjoying a uh, Brennivine and tonic right now in honor of oh, our Atlantic drinking session, and I don't want to rush it. Okay, well, good. Uh, I don't want to have to good. drink every time I use an adverb not ending in L-Y or something. <laughs> Andy, no, what are you drinking? So. Um, uh, well, I already had a cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm drinking an Einstock. It's the... Uh, the Toasted Porter, one of my favorites. Delightful. Uh, in honor of our drinking episode. And mm-hmm. next to me here is um, a, a little glass of Glenfiddich um, oh scotch that I'm, I'm looking forward to when I finish the uh, <laughs> the Einstock. They could war in your stomach just as they warred over the Orkneys for so many years. Exactly. Now, um, I think we can just agree to drink every so many minutes or something. I think that's our drinking game. <laughs> I'm going to we'll go just... with drinking whenever I'm thirsty. Yeah, when we're not talking, we could take a sip if we if we so desire. That's there you the go. game. Okay, but um, I agree. If you are listening and are so inclined, you know, make up your own game. Pick a couple of quirks or verbal ticks or something from each of us, and uh, just en- enjoy the ride. And please don't tell us what they are. Because <laughs> yes, I really every, don't want to know. Every time they mispronounce a name oh, or God. place or word. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for the alcohol poisoning. Uh, So while you're sinking into your cups, we ask that you remember the wise words of the Havamal, the poem credited to Odin himself. No burden is better for a man to bear on his way than his mother wit, and no provision is worse to carry than a drink too deep of ale. Or ignore that and enjoy your drink. (laughs) After all, from what we can tell, most people in the sagas weren't following that advice at any time. It's almost like they've never even heard of the Havamal. Right. <laughs> so the thing is, uh, to start with, we need to set a couple of ground rules. For the drinking? No, for the episode. The episode about ah. drinking. The episode. We're not trying to speak definitively here. Uh, there's a lot of information out there on this topic, and it goes off in some very strange directions. Uh, at the outset, we should say that the period we're covering, which is about the 9th through the 13th centuries, is a long time. Tastes change. Uh, import and export trends change. Crop yields change. Hairstyles change. Interest <laughs> rates fluctuate. Wait, wait, wait. Ha- what? Hairstyles? Uh, sorry, I wandered off into Abrams and Zucker films for a second there. The point <laughs> is that we're going to be offering an overview of the period, not a detailed chronology of developments in drinking culture. Yes, yes. And there's plenty of adjacent topics as well. For instance, there's the entire world of non-alcoholic drinks. But there's also the introduction of Christianity with the emphasis on sacramental wine as part of the mass. And then there's the question of importation of alcohol. And what about drinking vessels? All of that. Well, we'll talk about some of that, right? Some of it in this episode, some of it in the next one. 
The point is, if you're really deeply interested, or if you're writing a story or a role-playing module or, God help us, a paper for a class, and you need more in-depth knowledge than we have here, we'll list a bunch of materials to read to expand on what we're talking about. Always with the promises. And well, I know I, you don't you don't follow up on them. You don't check if I've done anything. You don't I, know. I trust you, Andy. This relationship is built on trust. Well, that's your uh, mistake. Well, in any case, one of us will post things. Uh, but I want to say at the outset that there are a handful of sources we're really relying on here. Uh, Vivian Edding's book, The Story of the Drinking Horn, Drinking Culture in Scandinavia in the Middle Ages. Kristen Wolff's Viking Age, uh, Everyday Life During the Extraordinary Era of the Norsemen. Uh, the entries on various aspects of drinking in the medieval Scandinavia encyclopedia. And most significantly, a dissertation by Jesus Fernando Guerrero Rodriguez on Old Norse drinking culture. Rodriguez's dissertation is really the gold standard, in my opinion, and I'm clearly not alone since I caught more than one scholar cribbing from his dissertation for internet articles. <laughs> really? You uh, you found some plagiarism out there, did you? Oh, pretty damn close to it, yes. By a couple oh. of established scholars, by the way. Well, I've studied scholars and their habits, and I wish I could say that I was surprised. Uh-huh. People have pretty funny ideas about how intellectual integrity and scholarly ethics work on the internet. Yeah. So my point is that if you're interested in learning more about this subject, uh, especially about the historical production and use of alcohol in Viking culture, just skip the online stuff and go to Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Um, his dissertation is available for free online. It's quite readable. And it's definitely where some of those internet clickbait articles are getting their information. All right. Where should we begin? There's so much to talk about. Well... I think we should start with a drink. Excellent. All right, then. What were they drinking? So we know that Icelanders drank a wide variety of beverages. Beverages? Is that the word they used? Uh, what's wrong with it? It, it makes it sound like we're going to be talking about big gulps or something. <laughs> I, look, I can't keep using drink as both noun and verb for the entire episode. It gets monotonous. Uh how about libations? That's a bit pretentious. How do you feel about liquids? They were drinking Uneasy. liquids. Uh, what about potables? I don't think so. Refreshments? Refreshments, Ooh, maybe? No. Now we're back to sound we're talking about soda. Uh, <laughs> That's true. And this whole, Damn it. Yeah, and this whole thing runs the risk of turning into a Monty Python thesaurus joke. So let's just call it whatever we want. Okay, but I got derailed there. I wanted to make the point that when people talk about what medieval people drank, they tend to forget to talk about all the non-alcoholic stuff. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Well, we know that Icelanders drank milk and water. Sure, with an emphasis on the milk. Mm -hmm. Uh, One estimate is that the Scandinavian diet would have included hundreds of grams of dairy products daily. That includes cheese, butter, yogurt, but milk was definitely a regular feature of the diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've already got plans for a separate saga brief about the overall diets of people in medieval Iceland. But we're primarily Uh interested in alcoholic drinks today. Sure. We've all got plans, John. I know we do. But see, they eventually come (laughs) to fruition. Many, many years later, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we, we know that medieval Scandinavians drank alcohols like ale, beer, mead, wine, and they also drank milk. We can probably concentrate on those. Okay. Um, So alcohol is a local product, right? Usually made on the property where it was to be drunk or very nearby. Sure. Most alcoholic Mm -hmm. drinks were all made the same way. Fill a container with water, heat it over a fire or with hot rocks, and introduce your ingredients. Honey for mead, grain for ale, and so on. 
It's the stone soup for grown-ups. It kind of is. Uh, so uh, once the liquid was made and cooled, it would be left out to be exposed to the air. Right. Um, mm-hmm. We've mentioned on the podcast previously, the idea when they were making alcohol back then was to introduce wild yeast into the process. Right. Uh, they're not distilling anything, in other no. words. These are these are strictly drinks that can be created through fermentation. Uh, although there is some suggestion that alcohol could be strengthened by leaving it out to freeze and then pulling out the ice, leaving behind a higher concentration of booze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very smart. Yeah. Uh, but this is just about making the stuff in the first place. Alcohol mm-hmm. content could also be regulated by the amount of sugar added, which could take the form of sap from trees, juice from berries, honey. But it's the yeast that's doing the hard work. Some sources suggest that the tons, the barrels, would be left under fruit trees to entice wild yeasts to settle in the drink. Uh, Mm. It's also likely that the dregs of previous brewings would be kept and nursed and pitched again to kickstart the next batch. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's smart. And others think that the yeast came from the brewing equipment or from the brewer herself. Meaning from the brewer's hands? What are are you implying? Uh, Or spit, which I accept is probably not less gross to modern sensibilities. Always put a little of yourself into the things you make. That's right. Well, uh, it's, it's been argued that many farms would have had a dedicated outbuilding for brewing uh, and that the equipment in there would be left in between brewing. So the, there could be yeast on all the equipment as well. At least one archaeological study has suggested that some of these brew houses have actually been excavated. The problem is that they're misidentified as bathhouses. Ah, what about uh, mixed use buildings? That's quite like possible, right? Brewing in the bathhouse? Or bathing in the brew house. Sure. I mean, bathtub, gin, right? <laughs> Great. Now we've got a Viking washing his or her armpits in the mash tun. That's a thing we Listen, made in people's brains. I can tell you when I uh, was in the Peace Corps in the Russian Far East, uh, when we first got our apartment, one of the first things that happened there was the people that actually owned the apartment showed up and started making moonshine. They called Samagon in the house. Um, he had this big, giant vat mm-hmm. um, that would, he, he, it was sealed like a big, big barrel. Um, he put it in the bathtub nice. with uh, warm water around it. So there was mm-hmm. brewing in the bathhouse. Very in nice. My apartment. There you go. Uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, you know, pe- these people did not have tons of indoor space, right? They're yeah. most likely using spaces for more than one thing. Exactly. Yeah. And we've got a number of texts talking about the use of wooden tubs for bathing when hot springs weren't available. Mm-hmm. And you're the one who talked about yeast coming from the brewer's body. So, yeah, it's all disturbingly plausible when you think yeah. about it. All right. Um, I'm a little unsettled now. Let's leave Helga Yeasty Pits to finish washing up and uh, move on to some specific drinks. Okay. Beer! Less good, they say, for the sons of men is too often drinking of ale. For the more one drinks, the less one thinks and keeps guard over one's wits. So, why start with beer, John? No reason. I'm just working alphabetically here. I mean, really? Alphabetically? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty lazy. <laughs> uh, I meant... <laughs> I, no, I, what I, I, why beer instead of ale? Well, for our purposes, we're going to be talking about beer and ale together. And yes, I know they aren't the same, but this is supposed to be a brief and corners must be cut. We're producing a cheap knockoff brief about beer. That's what we're doing. Uh, we're, we're Americans, Andy. Cheap, crappy beer is kind of our brand. 
Well, don't play into stereotypes. American beers come a long way. Uh-huh. Brought to you by the American Non-Crap Beer Council. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, anyway, we're totally justified in lumping them together because the word al, ale, was used indiscriminately for both substances. It's not even clear that there was a hard and fast distinction between beers and ales in this period, or at least in terms of the way the words are used. Right. Kind of like giants and trolls. Kind of, yes. Uh, so, you know, we just as we use beer today in English to mean anything from a lambic to a sour ale to a stout or a porter. Yeah, but there is an actual distinction there, a technical difference. Mm-hmm. The difference between ale and beer historically is hops. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but it's not a terminological difference that's being used in the Middle Ages necessarily. Ale is made right. from water, grain, and yeast because essentially it's runny bread that's gone bad. Well, that is... The worst description of a drink I've ever heard. And yet not inaccurate. Um, and this is coming from somebody who loves beer. Uh, there are distinctions made within saga literature between different kinds of ale, but they don't really correspond to modern differentiations. Sure. Uh, for example, Moongout is apparently a particularly desirable kind of ale. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ale Saga, for example, ales at the farm of Beard Armald, who insults him by bringing out only skur curdled milk to drink instead of something right, better. Right. Armad is the guy who's hostile to ale, but trying not to show it. Uh, ale ends up vomiting on him, presumably returning the curls, and then gouging one of his <laughs> eyes out. That's the guy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and definitely vomiting a lot. <laughs> yes. Thank you. We got that. Uh, so after the skewer, Armad brings out the actual booze, assuming that ale and his friends are too full to enjoy it. And the saga tells us, then the ale was brought in, and it was the strongest moongout. Now, Rodriguez argues that this might suggest a categorical difference as well as a qualitative one, that moongout might be a different concoction with an ale base. Yeah, I mean, it almost ends up sounding like ale is being used to describe alcohol made from barley. Right? And so moongout is somehow derived from that. Or a choice version sure. of it, yeah. So let's say you want to make just a basic ale. Just in case an angry berserk poet is stopping by, right? If you want to make a basic ale on an Icelandic farm in the 11th century or so, you start with grain. Usually a barley. Almost anything could be used in a pinch, but barley will work. Yeah, the argument is that barley was grown primarily for brewing purposes, in part because it did grow uh, relatively easily compared to other grains. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's also a convenient northern growing crop. Uh, barley does better than wheat in colder latitudes, so there'd be less need to import it. Right, that's a key right there. there right? Local production meant local materials were used as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So the barley is allowed to grow until it begins to bud. And then it was dried out, ground up or crumbled, and boiled. Uh, the liquid was drawn off and fermented using either wild yeast, meaning the brew was left outside for a while, or by the introduction of yeasts. Yeah. Now, one of the harder questions to answer is what they are using for yeast. I know we talked about the wild yeast from fruit trees or brewers' hands and so on. I mean the yeast that they were deliberately using, because we can't answer that definitively, because mm-hmm. there were probably different answers depending on when, where, and who the brewer is. Yeah. I mean, we can speculate. It, it kind of depends on how gross you want to imagine the past to be. Uh, I imagine it being very gross. Yeah. Well, so bread dough, starter from other batches of ale... Bits of moldy loaves, as we said, parts of the body of the brewer, you name it. Well, let's stick with the idea of non-bodily fluid yeast starters. Great. Technically, yeast is what 
a kind of fungus, right? Yeah, it's a one-celled organism. I think it technically is a fungus, but really it's just yeast. It's doing its own thing. That's right. So beyond introducing fermentation, um, you can add almost anything to the ale for flavor because the yeast is going to impart its own flavor. And you, while a modern brew might want to accentuate that, uh, they didn't have to accentuate it with medieval beer. Right? It was very, very yeasty beer. Uh, and so they have to add other things for flavor. Nuts, berries, bark, herbs, spices. Anything that won't kill the fermentation can go right in. And anything mm-hmm. that would kill it can be added later. Right? It's a it's a very versatile base for a drink. Yeah, and the process for making beer adds hops to that equation, which serves both to flavor and to preserve the life of the drink. Yes. So in essence, sometimes you feel like a hop, sometimes you don't. Sure. And until about the 13th century, no one felt like a hop. Uh, right. Technically, ale is what people drank in the saga age, right? uh, around the 9th to 12th centuries. But by the time the sagas are being written down, the use of hops is becoming widespread around Europe. So the sagas probably don't accurately reflect ale-making practices or terminology of the time in which they're set. Although the sagas are often pretty accurate when describing little details of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that Iceland in the later medieval period has already passed its golden age in terms of international trade. Older methods of brewing, they're probably still in use on farms around the island. Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, I did read various things about how very old kind of traditions for making alcohol were still in use in Iceland in the 19th, even 20th centuries. Um, and there's another complication. Uh, the, the, the period that we call the Little Ice Age the period beginning in about 1300 when Europe enters a cooling period with harsher winters and shorter growing seasons. Yeah, in Iceland, that means that the ingredients for ale or beer are going to be harder to come by since barley crops were stunted by this colder climate. Right. There's a, there's a great little story in Vigagloom's saga about the value of good malt grain. A man named Arnor Redcheek is preparing for his wedding to Thordis Gizzerstotter and rides with a farmhand to pick up some malty stashed away to make the wedding ale. But on the way back, they're ambushed by a party led by Thorgrim Thorison, who was rejected by Thordis's family in his suit for her hand. As they ride to the attack, Thorgrim says to his friends, This is a good opportunity. We won't go without the malt, at least, even if we must do without the woman. <laughs> uh, Arnor and his farmhand are forced to flee across a river, leaving their pack horses to be taken by Thorgrim, of course, containing all the malt. And Thorgrim calls out loud enough to be heard, Well, we're not entirely out of luck. The ale's ours to drink, though they'll arrange the woman's marriage. Stealing your rival's malt, that's petty. Yeah, and they rub it in, too. Uh, Later on, they joke about leaving the groom in water, which is uh, sort of a double joke about his fleeing through the river, but also about the lack of ale to be served at the wedding feast. Well, when we get there, I, I sense uh, some of the notable witticism candidates will be coming from that. <laughs> does that seem like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, there's an equivalent story about an 11th century man, Asbjorn Sigurdsson, uh, who has to smuggle grains to his northern Norway farm mm-hmm. by ship because King Olaf had banned the sale of grain and malt to the north. Asbjorn's dad, uh, Asbjorn's dad has died, though, and he chooses to risk breaking the embargo rather than dishonoring his family's memory by not drinking at his funeral feast. Yeah, I mean, that, that speaks to the importance of alcohol and celebration. We'll, we'll cover that in a little yeah. while. Yeah, uh, but let's go back to the farms, okay? Uh, brewing is local by necessity, of course, mm-hmm. um, still is, um, since the unhopped version 
doesn't last long or transport easily. So a lot of brewing is being done at the household level, usually by the women of the house, which, if uh, I remember my time in Russia, is it's often quite true still mm. there. Um, a lot of the, uh, the women that I encountered were the ones that made the moonshine, although I was trained by uh, a Navy captain. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, even in larger communities, there's a lot of brewing being done for individual households. Um, some estimates are that over half of the women of a community would have been actively brewing, most of them for domestic use. Right. I mean, culturally, women were very much understood to be the makers of alcohol. Uh, because of that, they're also the ones who determine the quality of the drink to be found at any given farmstead. Uh, in one of the Fronaldosogr, uh, Half Saga, we get a story that illustrates this, I think, really nicely. There's a king named Alrekar who has to resolve a rivalry between uh, Signy and Gerhild, two of his wives. He d- decides on a beer brewing contest, with the more skilled brewer staying and the loser being banished. Bo- in this story, of course, again, this is the Fernaldo Sogar, both of the wives call on the gods for help. Uh, Sinji calls on Freya, and Gerhild uh, prays to Odin. Odin shows up and agrees to help Gerhild, but at the cost of her firstborn child. <laughs> so he's some kind of Rumpelstiltskin. Yes. Odin is Rumpelstiltskin in this story. Exactly, Great. yes. Uh, he's making golden ale instead of golden thread. But otherwise, yeah. Okay, this sounds like an ad campaign waiting to happen. Come on now. It's great. Uh, Geralt agrees to this deal, by the way, and Odin grows to work. Uh, he uses his spittle as yeast. There's that again. Uh, mm-hmm. And the ale is excellent. And Geralt wins the contest. There's that spit as yeast thing again. That's very interesting. Uh, that's going to be a theme, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I know exactly where that's going to come up again. Yep. But uh, yeah, anyway, content warning for anyone who finds spit gross. Maybe we should put it that at, uh, at the beginning. <laughs> so what we're saying here is a, a woman who knows how to brew, or at least knows which god to call on for brewing assistance, is considered to have a very important skill. Absolutely. Uh, but obviously when you're away from home, you need to find someone selling ale if you want to have any around. And that commercial brewing was often performed by men and women sort of working together. For example, at the All mm-hmm. Thing, there were local people who brewed and sold beer to the various groups and chieftains in attendance. Remember our old friend Alehood? Oh, yes. Alehood was the professional ale seller at the All Thing, mm-hmm. although not everyone thought his beer was very good. Right. But uh, you've got to have a drink to offer when people stop by your booth. So. Yeah. Right. Whatever you can get. Yeah, Alehood's best customers are the cultural elite for exactly that reason, right? They have to have refreshments on offer, not just for themselves and their family, but for large numbers of guests who might end up under their roof, right? Those traveling a long distance to the All Thing weren't going to be bringing 100 gallons of ale on a cart across Iceland. It's much easier to buy it from someone like Alehood. Yeah, I don't know how many sagas make reference to drinking at the things, but it's a lot of yeah. them. We've seen men killed while drinking, social drinking, ritual drinking. It all comes to a lot of ale being swilled at these assemblies. Right. And, you know, how the transport to the Thingvetler site alone is uh, it's a, quite a task. Yes. Um, but, again, at home, brewing is mostly non-commercial and done by women. And they're brewing a lot. Uh, it really isn't until the commercialization of the alcohol-making process that men start to compete with women in the realm of brewing and move that brewing into sort of dedicated large spaces. Until then, it's looked on as part of the running of the household, right? And that was generally left to women. And it makes sense that the person who oversees the food and drink supplies would be the one in charge of making sure that the ale production is keeping up with the household's mm-hmm. needs. 
and that the ingredients are kept in supply as well. Exactly. Uh, so ale is being produced on a daily basis, but would sometimes need to be made in larger quantities, especially for celebrations. Yeah, this is probably a good place to state once again that the idea that people didn't drink water in the Middle Ages, that's a myth. Yeah, they drank water. They drank water, everyone. Hon- honestly, they did. It's silly to think that they didn't. But it is true that ale, usually a weaker kind of small beer, was drunk in large quantities. But good ale was brewed for holidays, for weddings, feasts, and so on. Yeah. Uh, as an example, the uh, Heimskringla saga of Hauken the Good includes a law pushed by Hauken that required a large quantity of ale to be brewed from a set measure of grain uh, and to celebrate the holiday as long as the ale lasted. Uh, Graham and Merendinley calculated that the requirement would have led to a large household brewing something like 160 gallons of ale, uh, Mm. which is about 22 kegs of ale or 1,280 pint servings. Hooey! That's enough to keep the party going for a long while. Yeah, suddenly all those 12-day Yule feasts make a lot of sense. Mead! Oh, I just started my Glenn Fittich. So good. <laughs> I dared my life for a draft. Little is lacking to the wise. For the soul-stirrer now, sweet mead of song is brought to men's earthly abode. So, mead is just one of those things. I'm, I'm a little hesitant even to address it, because people have strong feelings about this one. Now, you and I are both fans. Of the drink itself? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, heck, we both uh, brewed mead some. Uh, we both brewed mead with some success. Which... Frankly, suggest it's not that tough to make. I know oh, you're pretty good at alcohol so easy. brewing, but mead has turned out to be a thing that I'm least likely to screw up. <laughs> yeah, but we're we're not talking about brewing mead. We're talking about its history, Meh. which means acknowledging that there's a reasonably strong argument to be made that mead was out of fashion by the 11th century, possibly even earlier than that. Mm. Maybe even by the time of most of the historical events retold in the sagas. Absolutely. Uh, The fruit wines that we're going to be talking about later on uh, and the increasing use for cereal grains for ale making that we were just discussing and some other issues all contributed. Uh, So mead was kind of on the the downswing, but not everyone is convinced about that. Folks get snippy about this one. They get snippy, do they? And sarcastic. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's not get ahead of things just yet. Uh, First of all, mead is a drink made from honey and water fermented with yeast. A lot of modern quote-unquote mead that you will find in a store, well, it's actually made from either white wine or grain alcohol with honey added for flavor. But those aren't technically mead. Some of them taste okay, but they're not mead. And it, if you're if you've ever tasted one or the other, it's a big difference. Whatever. No, it's a, it's an absolutely big difference. Um, you know, real mead, like good, just simple mead, is so clean and so good. Yeah. The other stuff has such odd flavors in it most of the time. It really does. Um, so the brewing process for actual mead is actually just very similar to ale, but with honey instead of grains. Right, which means it's a very different matter to collect the raw material. Sure. An entirely different set of practices. You've got raiding hives, storage of large amounts of honeycomb and honey. It's it's not much like working with barley. Mm-hmm. It's not any messier. Anyone who's ever spilled a batch of malt will know how sticky this stuff can get, but it's fair to say that it's different. Right. It's also very easily flavored. 
right? By everything from the flowers, the beads have been pollinating to the yeast used. Um, And although we should say, although there is some evidence for Norse beekeeping, it's very limited. So far, only one site has been found. Um, And it's in an Anglo-Scandinavian context in York in England, not in Scandinavia. I have not found any clear evidence of beekeeping in Iceland or Norway in this period. Have you looked into bee populations in Iceland? Because I know Iceland doesn't have frogs, for example, or lizards. Right. And I know their insect population, gnats excluded, um, it's fairly small. Right. You'd almost assume that bees would have to be artificially introduced. Yeah. Which would suggest that beekeeping is happening. And again, there is some evidence for it. The problem is no archaeological evidence has been found to back it up. Well, but, you know, what would the beekeeping, you know, what kind of materials that would survive through hundreds and hundreds of years would, you know, that's... Well, I mean, actually... It makes sense that it wouldn't survive. Well, I mean, some things from... Well, yeah, I suppose. But there's, there's some things that might survive. We do find evidence of apiaries all over Roman ruins, in medieval ruins. I mean, you do find them. Yeah. But let, let's imagine that they're just raiding wild nests, sure. which is is difficult and, and usually destructive and sure, yes. potentially painful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned before that these drinks all probably had a sour quality to them, but I'd like to think that would be less pronounced or maybe just better masked in mead. Maybe. Uh, the reasons for mead becoming less popular probably aren't about taste, right? They're quite complicated. But a lot of people have argued that by the 10th and 11th centuries – Mead was being pushed out in favor of other drinks, specifically in favor of fruit wines. But obviously, even if it was past its heyday as a drink, mead has a significant place in Norse mythology. It's probably the drink most associated with the gods. Although Thor seems to drink a lot of ale, Mm -hmm. and Odin seems to have a preference for wine, which was on brand for both of them. Thor as a god of the people, Odin as a slightly aloof aristocratic type. Sure. Uh, but mead was the drink woven into the mythology itself. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, people may or may not know about the story of Kvasar's mead. but uh, They better know it if they're listening to this. Come well, on but we've never actually told it on the podcast, I don't think. Uh, That's so true. So this seems like the right place for it. So are you saying it's, it's story time? Sort of. This is the abbreviated version of the story, since it's actually kind of an involved myth. It is, but it's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also never learned to trust you when you say things like abbreviated shh, or let's shh. let's do this quickly. Oh, shh. Story's starting. So, oh. our tale begins when the Asir, who lived in Asgard, won a war against the Vanir from Vanaheim. <laughs> As part of the peace settlement, the gods, Asir and Vanir, all spat into a vat. And then, from that spittle, they made a man. There you go. There's that spit catalyst again. Yep. Uh, the man's name was Kvasir, and Kvasir was so wise, so wise there was no question he could not answer. Kvasir traveled in the worlds, teaching his wisdom and answering questions that were put to him. He ended up at a home owned by two dwarves, Galar and Fjallar. The dwarves said they had a question to ask, but instead they lured Kvasir into their home and killed him. They drained his blood into three containers, two vats and a kettle. They blended honey with the blood and made a wondrous mead. Anyone who drank this mead gained the gift of knowledge and poetry. Sometime later, the gods went looking for Kvasir, and when they stopped at the house of Galar and Fjallar, the dwarves told them that Kvasir had been choked to death by his wisdom, 
because he had no questions left to answer. The gods were saddened and suspicious about all this, but they went away. Now, sometime later, the dwarves decided to kill a giant named Gilling uh, by luring him out in a boat and drowning him. Then they murdered his wife when she wouldn't stop crying about his death. Yeah. This is really one of the more brutal myths of the cycle. And that's saying something. Although, honestly, it's all these two dwarves that are doing the murdering. So, Gilling's son, Suthung, then captures those dwarves and threatens to drown them in revenge for his parents' deaths. But the dwarves bargain for their lives by giving Suthung the mead. Suthung then hides the mead with his daughter, Gunlach, for safekeeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this giant Sutung mm-hmm. has the mead yep. right now. And by the way, this is why in poetry, mead will sometimes be referred to as Kvasir's gift. Mm-hmm. But there's also a version called Sutung's mead. Yes, we'll, we'll get to that distinction. So Odin learns about Kvasir's death and the existence of the mead and travels under the name of Bolverk to search for it. Things. Wait a minute. You're telling me he doesn't use the name Guests? I thought it was established <laughs> I, that Guests you know, is actually, the go-to name. I was talking to, to uh, someone on Discord about this uh, last week, about the number of names credited to Odin in various texts. And it oh, is yeah, yeah. absolute madness uh, how, it's many, astonishing. how many names he goes under in various forms. But, of uh, course, there's an interesting – there's good theories for why that's the case sure. and why yep. in the, the prose edit in particular all those are listed. Yep. And, Poetic as well. Absolutely. Because we're talking about all of Germanic culture and all their various versions in their early tribal states um, having these names, plus all the stories Mm -hmm. that are stacked upon all of that stuff. Absolutely. So lots of potential for different names. Sure. Now, I'm going to have to jump ahead a bit because things do get a little complicated. Uh, At one point, Odin fools nine slaves into slitting each other's throats for a whetstone. Later, he turns into a serpent and sneaks through a mountain. Uh, eventually, he spends three nights making love to Sutung's daughter, Gunlaf, in exchange for three <laughs> sips of the mead. Look at how fast you go. You're just yada yadaing a lot of the myth here, just oh, running right through it. I absolutely am. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, it's worth reading. And I really yeah. do think we should talk about the myths in detail at some point. Right now, though, I'm trying to talk about mead. Well, in that case, you're not yada yadaing enough. You need to keep on rolling. <laughs> we'll stop interrupting. I'll see what I can do. Odin drinks every drop of the mead with his three sips, transforms himself into an eagle, and takes off for Asgard. Suttung figures out what's happened and becomes a bigger eagle to pursue Odin. As they approach Asgard, the other gods see Odin winging his way toward them with a giant bird in pursuit and realize that Odin must have succeeded. So they bring out huge cauldrons just as Odin crosses over the wall into Asgard. Odin reaches the wall just inches ahead of Suttung, who has to pull up rather than risk being shot down by the gods. Odin spits almost all the mead into the cauldrons, but between the excitement and the fear of the chase, he accidentally lets some of the mead leak from his rear end. This mead, which is understandably a little worse for wear, is all that Suttung manages to bring away with him. It's called Suttung's mead, and it's supposedly the mead drunk by bad poets and hacks. Got to say, first of all, Norse myths are just great. What, because the butt and, mead? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. And my, my students, when we read the uh, the Edda, this is one of their favorite moments. Because yeah. none of them are expecting it to happen. Yeah. And when it does, yeah. they remember it. <laughs> I got to say, they remember. 
Um, yeah, but the good mead, that's the mead that Odin grants to the great poets and to the artists. Mm-hmm. And bad poets, they literally get the shitty mead. That's right. And what we're left with is a drink that was probably not widely consumed in Iceland. Uh, certainly not by the time sagas are being written down. Yeah, and honestly, if you look through the sagas, there aren't all that many references to people drinking mead. True. Even though it's a stereotype that we have in mo- the modern age. Mm-hmm. Um, ale and wine, they seem to come up much more often. Yeah, true. But it was it was enshrined in the history of mythology. And so it kept a place in the poetry and writing of the island. Especially uh-huh. the myth of Kvasir kept mead alive in the imagination, right? Mead, according to that story, is made from a figure who personified and was literally made from peace and friendship. And God spit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it, obviously. It also reinforces the idea of drinking as an act of peace and amity, right? Friendship between humans and between the gods as well. And we said earlier that Odin is supposed to drink only wine, which probably reflects wine status as an imported, expensive, bourgeois drink. Right. Odin and his bougie booze. But the thing is, in some texts, it's made clear that while Odin's drinking the Merlot, he still provides mead for his men. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Although, as uh, Grimnismal tells us, it's sort of an unusual dispensary system. It says... Hraithun, the great goat, stands by the Allfather's hall. The branches of Lerath, her food. The pitchers she fills with a fair, clear mead. The foaming drink never falters. So, this is a goat that produces mead from her udders. Not just produces. Cascades, John. (laughs) The flow never falters. That's one impressive goat, and if I could get one in my backyard, I'd be really happy. (laughs) Milk? Bjorn asked Thorsten, What do they call this meal, where you are from? Thorsten answered that they called it cheese and skur. Bjorn said, We call this food Foe's Joy. That's in the saga of Bjorn the Hidenal Champion. Now we come to the family of much maligned milk drinks. Yeah, but we should explain why they're maligned, shouldn't we? Well, the problem is that dairy was a staple of the diet of ordinary Scandinavians, and it was generally seen as peasant food. Uh, Not that anyone totally avoided dairy products, but it was much more prominently featured on the poor man's table than at a rich banquet. Well, there's definitely a prejudice against milk drinks in the sagas, I think. Yes. It's sort of treated as an unfortunate thing to have to serve guests. Um, In that quote you just read, my noble thingman Bjorn the Heterdahl champion is served what amounts to skur, with runny skur to wash it down. Kind of a gross combination um, in that context. Um, He sees it as food fit for the kind of people you don't want to associate with. Right. Uh, skur or curds is also what Eoskala Grimson was served on two different occasions. Once at the home of Atloybard, uh, and once when he's staying with uh, Beardarma. On both of those occasions, Ail's host is hiding, quote-unquote, better food and drink from him by giving him the milk products, and it ends badly both times. Well, he kills Atloybard and he gouges Armod's eye out. See, that's, that's ending badly. 
Uh, exactly. It also seems significant that on both occasions, after the dairy products, one or more people end up vomiting. <laughs> There's not a lot of love for yogurt smoothies in the sagas. Nope. Mm. Uh, people were, clearly were drinking curds and whey. It's mentioned a number of times. But it was the food you used to fill bellies. Uh, serving it to a guest, unless there's nothing better to offer, was somewhere in between embarrassing and rude. Okay. So, all right. What we see there is a bit of class snobbery at work. Yeah. What else we got? Well, put it this way. How would you like a white Russian, Andy? Ooh. Don't mind if I do. You know, I, I, I kind of like those. Yeah. How about a Kahlua and cream? An I'll eggnog? Yeah. A, a Brandy okay. Alexander? I'm Coquito. in. A mudslide. Uh, why are you doing this? I'm making a point. People okay. drink all sorts of milk and booze drinks in the Western world, but the key is that they're generally milk with booze added. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, they're not booze made from milk. Correct. And there's a big difference there. And it's important to get that straight right away. If uh-huh. anyone is thinking of pouring vodka into a Dairy Queen blizzard, that's fine. You do you. But that's not what Scandinavians were drinking. No, no. Speaking of which, uh, you sent me that recipe uh, for the, uh, what's it called, the Iceberg Paralyzer. That's right. Um, you, you you said that, it, I don't know where you got this, but it was a popular drink in Reykjavik. Apparently. Sh- sure. Maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I only made it because, first of all, the ingredients were on hand. Uh, mm-hmm. It involves an ounce of vodka, an ounce of Kahlua, and then you... You fill a glass with ice, you put that in there, and you, you then get near to the top, just a finger below filled with Coke, and then you top it off with milk. Milk, John. <laughs> so I read that recipe to myself, and I thought, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> Why? You know what happens when you, when you mix Coke and milk? Uh, yes, it, but it also... the milk. Well, no. If you, don't, if you do it right, it doesn't because... Well, that's the thing. That's the trick. Coke and milk was actually what my mother would give my brothers and I when we had stomach aches. Interesting. So what you need is is the ice to cool... Right. It, it, if whatever. I don't, I don't know the chemical situation here. Uh, but when you get those two together, oh, magic happens. Now, there you go. I made that drink today a mm-hmm. couple times. And mm-hmm. if I drank it a couple, a couple times, of times. <laughs> it means it was pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet. Tastes kind of like a mix between like maybe a vanilla milkshake or a, a root beer float almost. Mm-hmm. Something quite nice about um, it. You know, and we should actually we should throw up the recipe since uh, since our drinking podcast today was you doing iceberg paralyzers and me having uh, Brennavine and tonic. We should probably put those up on the website. Well, I drank I drank the the uh, iceberg paralyzers this afternoon. I mean, um. still, still, still leading up to, still on the occasion still of leading up to, yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, that was that was really good. <laughs> and I also, I just said the recipe, so there you right, go. Right, fair enough. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. um, getting back to what we're really supposed to be talking about, there right. there are a, a few drinks that they did make from milk. Mm-hmm. Um, besides milk, obviously, they there's skur, uh, first of all, which was somewhere between a solid and a liquid, and may have denoted a whole range of yogurt-like food and drinks. Um, there's also sura, which is a sour fermented drink. Uh, from made, It's made from whey and rennet. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's uh, misa, which is a soured milk, supposedly something like buttermilk. Uh, misa isn't generally an alcoholic drink, so we're not going to get into that one. 
Yeah, if, if you're near a computer, though, you should search for images of Misa, which can be spelled M-I-S-A or M-Y-S-A. It's a really interesting green-blue color. <laughs> you you got to eat blue. There's a lot of antioxidants in there. <laughs> Oxygits? Um, uh, no. See, you um, see the blue. problem with drinking iceberg paralyzers in the afternoon, Andy. <laughs> no, no, no. That was a that was a reference to it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I see. And you just aren't hip enough to get it. I am not. Oh well. So the the musa is a uh, watery byproduct of cheese making, and I know that's not an especially appealing description, but I've actually read several different people's reports online that it's quite tasty. I found one site that said it tastes vaguely like Gatorade, which I find hard to believe personally, uh, and recommended it as a post-workout drink. Now, I haven't tried that for myself for the obvious reason that I haven't had a workout to post. But (laughs) if anyone has had it and wants to write in to tell us about it, we'd love to hear about it. I know there's, uh, you know, there are these protein whey drinks that they sell in um, uh, nutrition stores for post-workout kind of rehydration. So there may be something to that. Sure. Uh, so even without the misa, milk was an important and common part of the Icelandic diet, right? Right. Milk, cheese, whey, skur. It's not likely that a person would often go without dairy in a day's food if they had a choice. John, uh, how much uh, dairy does your house go through in a day? Uh, not much, actually. Uh, my older son has a dairy allergy. Uh, so we do use up a lot of milk replacement stuff, though. Oat milk, soy cheese, that kind of stuff. How about you? Um, you know, milk with a, a piece of chocolate or something, the uh, milk mm-hmm. on cereal. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I personally don't drink tons of it. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, yogurt's great. Uh, my wife, though, she's from a Scandinavian, you know, she's half Swedish. And um, boy, do they eat their dairy products, man. They love it. My wife's from Wisconsin, so I understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had a high school science teacher who was explaining his lactose intolerance to us as part of a biology lesson. I, I will never forget his explanation, which was that if he ate cheese, you could use him as a Bunsen burner an hour later. Ugh, oh, oh. Yep. That's an unpleasant but uh, enduring image. Thank you. Isn't it? I, I'm still remembering it now. <laughs> uh, it's worth noting in, pa- in passing, by the way, that uh, di- lactose intolerance wasn't a major problem for Northern Europeans. Uh, You're kidding, given their, their cultural history. Well, right. I mean, it's estimated that worldwide... Almost two-thirds of humanity has some degree of lactose intolerance. But among Northern Europeans, that number drops down to somewhere around 20% or lower. Mm. Apparently, it's not because of the amount of dairy in the diet. It's actually due to some prehistoric migration patterns in Europe. You know, you don't have to show all of your work on this assignment. We could just, you know. You know, if you only knew how much I'm leaving out. (laughs) Well, an Icelandic farm would want as much dairy as it could get. But it wasn't always easy to get. Cows and sheep were brought over from Norway in the 9th century. Cows were the most desirable milk producers, and they were fairly hardy. Mm -hmm. But cows use up a lot of grass to keep themselves going and to produce milk. So large herds were only for the wealthy, as we've seen in the sagas. Right. Now, most farmers would have thought themselves very lucky to have a couple of cows on the farm. Especially during that little ice age, right? The, the later period, when the sagas are being written. Less grass growth meant less forage, so less food for the cows. Absolutely. And sheep and maybe goats were more common because they're easier to feed. Mm -hmm. They gave less milk, but with more of them, it could be enough. Yeah, so once they have all this milk, what are they doing with it? How are we getting to the booze, Andy? 
Well, that's a good question. Well, for starters, you gotta you gotta make a lot of score. Right now, most listeners are probably familiar with score as a protein-rich, yogurty kind of food. Right, you can get it mm-hmm. in a lot of American groceries now, and it's probably pretty widely available around Europe, I imagine. Yeah, but the sagas talk about skur as being somewhere between a solid and a liquid, like we said earlier. Mm-hmm. And the consistency is somewhat, well, I guess somewhat incon- inconsistent is the best uh-huh. way to say it. Yeah, I see what you're doing. Uh, I'm pretty sure there still is drinkable skur available on the market for that matter. Sure. I mean, there must be. Uh, but So what's happening there is that the sagas aren't necessarily being imprecise about skur solidity um, or liquidity. There's an imprecision in the usage of the term, though. Skur is technically a soft cheese, not a yogurt, but it was also the main ingredient in a drink which was also called skur, and which involved mixing in whey. Right. Whey was pretty handy stuff on a farm, really. Uh, You can make bread with it, you can cook with it, you can use it as a low-grade fertilizer. Sure. And in a pinch, you can even put out fires with it, which is how (laughs) Gisli Sursen ended up with his name. Gisli's dad, Thorbjörn, threw a barrel of whey on a burning wall to allow himself and his family to escape a burning farmhouse, which means that they kept barrels of whey around. Exactly. It's expected. Um, he escaped, but became known as Thorbjorn Sur or Thorbjorn Way, and his sons, including Gisli, became known as the Sons of Way. Yeah, a, a gang for dairy gone bad, the Sons of Way. <laughs> sure. Now, whey was also used to boost fermentation in other alcohols. Um, part of that has to do with the lactose available in it um, mm. and its reaction. Um, but, you know, when I was uh, living in Russia and they were making moonshine in my bathtub, uh, <laughs> one of the things uh, that was explained to me fairly early on was that you can do longer uh, fermentation processes, which can take two to three weeks or something like that. But you can also speed it up. If you got a drink, uh, you get that moonshine produced really, really quickly, you can put whey into the mixture and that accelerates the process a little bit. It just like the yeast just loves whey. Is that what's going on? Yeah, yeah. It, it, huh. it kickstarts it and gets it all. Everybody gets so excited when that whey gets in right. there. But presumably that would impart some distinct flavoring to the resulting drink, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, lactose I mean, sugars of, are different than sucrose or than fructose. I can tell you in the case of the moonshine, no. <laughs> I didn't notice any perceptible uh, flavor. Well, I'm just thinking about between. like milk stouts, right, which are an increasingly popular sure. thing on the American market, which are made with lactose sugars instead and mm-hmm. thus have a slightly different flavor to them. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, did, I haven't done any scientific studies, and I've only mm. made um, moonshine with whey in it in America one time. And um, I didn't, again, no, I didn't notice anything special. So the point is that um, it, it, was a, it was a flavor that was at least very familiar, if there is one. Sure. Right? And there may or may not yeah. be one. I mean, it starts to seem like a drinking session in the saga age required a tolerance for sour flavor, doesn't it? Mm. And probably uh, maybe a strong stomach as well. Yeah, um, that's that's one of the characteristics of almost all the alcohol, right? Different things that I've read all agree on this, that the, uh, the booze would have had a relatively sour flavor compared to what we are used to in the modern day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whey is showing up in other kinds of drinks, but we haven't actually gotten to the fermented milk yet. I want to talk about Sura. Well, we haven't saved the best for last or anything here. Uh, Sura, <laughs> Sura is still regarded as a lower quality drink. And yet, it wasn't only commonly drunk, it was actually a fair amount of work to make it. Mm-hmm. People aren't so snooty about this stuff as the sagas make them out to be. 
Well, the sagas do generally come from a perspective that's sympathetic to the wealthier classes. Uh, but it's also not super clear how much of this stuff was actually being consumed. Uh, it has other uses, and the archaeological evidence is kind of mixed. Okay, but let's not wander off again. We're on Sura. Uh, you were going to be talking about Sura. So okay, go ahead. Uh-huh. So, uh, Sura is made from skimmed milk. It's mainly skimmed milk. Mainly. Yeah. Uh, the other ingredient is called rennet. Mm-hmm. And with all respect to the cultural practices of anyone who's a big fan of their rennet, I could do without this one. Uh, content warning for anyone who doesn't like to listen to stories of terrible things happening to baby animals. What what kind of content warning is that? Who, who likes the idea of terrible things happening to baby animals? I mean, kind of sick? you know, people who like rennet. <laughs> but fair <laughs> point. Okay, you've been warned. Don't listen to this. <clears throat> Rennet is made by slaughtering a baby calf before it's had anything but milk to drink. The stomach of the calf is cut out and hung to dry with the milk from its last meal still in the stomach. Wow. The milk is left to curdle and dry out. Once the whole thing was dry, it was then taken down and soaked in a bowl of salt and whey. After about two weeks or so, the resulting liquid is rennet. Mm. Okay. That's a hell of a process. Yeah. And that's got to be some pretty strong smelling stuff. I would imagine so. And by the way, we are only just getting started. So once the rennet is made, you'd then boil a batch of skimmed milk, uh, let it cool to about 95 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe 35 to 38 degrees Celsius, and then add the rennet and some warm milk. After a couple of hours... The curds were swept off the top, and the remaining liquid was barreled for fermentation. Fermentation of sura could take anywhere up to a couple of years before it was potable. But when it was over, bippity-boppity-boo, you had yourself a supply of sura. There's a lot of maintenance and storage involved in the making of this stuff. Yes. Most of the other types of drinks can be made in a few months or weeks, or in a pinch, days. This can easily be a multi-year process. Mm -hmm. The women who ran the farm would need to know how to move this process along at each step. Yeah, in that way, it's I would say it's like farming in general. Uh, So much of what's learned is passed down, taught over the course of years. What amazes me is how someone figures out to do all this for the first time. Well, easy. A person was sitting around with a vat of watery runoff from a batch of cheese and thought, you know what? I bet with a dried calf's stomach and about eh, 23 months, this could be really something useful. Yeah, it's obvious when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Sura is a pretty versatile brew. Mm-hmm. It's highly acidic, so it can be used for food preservation and storage. And it can be watered down and drunk for pleasure. Although pleasure might be a relative concept here. Right, but it was definitely not a prestige drink. No, we have saved the snooty drink. For last. Wine! For a long time, Turkir spoke only in German, with his eyes darting in all directions and his face contorted. They understood nothing of what he was saying, but Leif realized that his companion was pleased about something. After a while, Turkir spoke in Norse, 
I only went a bit further than the rest of you, but I have news to tell. I found vines and wine berries. Greenlander Saga. Beer, mead, dairy, then wine. Mm -hmm. Seems like a dangerous order to drink in if you believe in the old uh, <laughs> orders yeah. of drinks. Right. That's, you know, what they say uh, beer, mead and milk, then wine, never sicker. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you throw the milk in, it can uh, have an effect. <laughs> yup. Uh, so what do we have to say about wine? Well, for starters, we've got more than one kind of drink involved here. We've mm -hmm. got to differentiate between wine made from grapes and wine made from, well, basically everything else. Are we going to talk about prison right. wine? I feel like prison wine is a good thing. Oh, yeah, we'll get to it. Oh, good, good. Uh, all right, well, let's start with grapes. Okay. Well, in some ways, wine from grapes is a simple story, since there were no grapes in Iceland. Well, that seems definitive. Or Norway, for that matter. So to be clear, what you're saying is no grapes were being grown in Iceland, right? Not that they didn't know what grapes were. Well, yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. yeah. They, they're well-traveled. Uh, right. This is just a climate thing, right? It's not a cultural preference. Uh, the border of grape production weather was just below Scandinavia, even during the relatively warm period of the 10th to 13th centuries. There's been debates about where exactly that border was, but definitely you wouldn't have ever found vineyards in Hologoland. But Scandinavians were major travelers. They were traders in the markets sure. of Europe. They knew a great deal about regional foods and products, and they certainly had access to wine from grapes. It was just really expensive to drink it at home. Right. And in fact, there's, there's some evidence of Germanic peoples buying wine going way back. Uh, to go back to Tacitus, Tacitus wrote in the late first century that Germans mainly drank a liquor made out of barley or other grain and fermented into a certain resemblance to wine. Uh, you know, I, I've been interested in your Tacitus voice. It sounds very uh, regal. Uh, because Tacitus is an upper class man. No, he's, he, that he is. He sure I mean, is. This, th we are talking about the son-in-law of the governor of Roman England. Um, well, okay. So what Tacitus is describing there is basically ale. Well, it's ale from the perspective of an anaphile, obviously. Uh, uh -huh. But hang on, there's more. Uh, the you just throw out the word anaphile and just like let it sit there. What? Like everyone knows what that is. It's a person who's into wine. <laughs> yes, but okay. uh, does everyone use a that wine word lover? How's that? I like wine. I'm an yeah. anaphile, a guy who likes the wines. Uh, no, uh, but he also does say. The dwellers on riverbanks also buy wine. Aha. Uh -huh. So it's an import, right? And it's thought of as an importable commodity from very early on. Yeah, and possibly not what we would think of as especially high quality. I mean, probably not, no. Dude, it, it, you ever go to people's houses and they're like, I make my own wine. And then you try it and it's like, just... But why no. do you? <laughs> it's not good. Well, because you're at a person's... For the same reason that people try my mead. Except no, my I mead mean is is really good. Right, exactly. No, I you know what? As somebody who has made plenty of crap liquor over the years, uh I appreciate people trying. Yes. God bless exactly. them, I say. God bless the efforts. I agree. You know who makes terrible terrible wine? Um who? The Russians who make really good moonshine make the worst <laughs> wine 
than I've ever tasted. It's basically wow. little, it's like it's like grape juice. You it's heard him, Vladivostok. You're on blast. <laughs> That's right. No, these are the people. These are the people of Arsenyev. Oh man. Oh well. Anyways, the <laughs> if we get back on subject now, the methods of mm-hmm. fermenting alcohol in medieval Europe mm-hmm. seem to have created sour flavors in the booze. Mm-hmm. That can work with ale or with your milk drinks, but it's not a flavor modern people tend to associate with a desirable wine. Right, but that's also what you get. Yeah, I mean, there's this popular drink called sack in the late medieval to early modern period that is sweetened wine. Uh, some of it was naturally sweeter, but most of it was probably sugar added. Yeah. Uh, think Manischewitz. Uh, and its popularity was partly because that sweetness cut the sour flavor that a lot of wine carried. So when Scandinavians were drinking wine, they were basically importing it, yes. mostly from the Rhineland and the areas we now call France and Germany, but from points further south as well. Right, and that made it pricey. Oh well, if you're not stealing it, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they are. You know, Vikings being Vikings and all. Uh, but yeah, for, for people that are just trying to consume wine on a re- in a regular way, wine was the drink of rich men and public men who could afford it or who wanted to be seen drinking the drink of the wealthy. Mm-hmm. It was a drink for ceremonies and for showing off. Ale, and in an earlier time, mead, would have been a drink for everyday partying. So that expensive wine is being shipped, well, it's usually being shipped in barrels or in amphorae. One source I read details an archaeological find that shows the afterlife of some of those barrels, by the way. Uh, apparently, there was a, they were a good size for lining wells that were being sunk for drinking water. Interesting. Medieval recycling at its best. Good, good, good. Yeah. Although, by the way, um, aging your well water in ecologically sourced wine barrels is possibly the most hipster thing I've ever heard of Vikings doing. <laughs> Really? I mean, a whole group of guys who grew long beards and then meticulously groomed them? That wasn't... uh... (laughs) Touché. So grape wine was an expensive commodity, but there's also the other kind of wine. I don't drink grape wine. Not if you're not rich, you don't. Uh, But wine, or vine, can be made from almost any fruit. Uh, It can be made from a few vegetables, for that matter, even a few free-growing flowers. Uh, Dandelion wine has been made in Europe for possibly over a millennium. Wine is just much more versatile than we tend to think of it as being. Dandelion wine was a medicinal drink for a long time. Sure, but people were enjoying it recreationally as well. It's like rock and rye. Rock and rye. Yeah, (laughs) it's a... Weird 19th century American thing, if anybody who isn't familiar with that stuff. Uh, rye whiskey with orange or lemon and rock candy dissolved in it. Uh-huh. It was supposed to cure consumption, but it was basically an old-fashioned. Okay, yes. that's You know, that's really interesting. What if I was making an old-fashioned and I put rock... Where am I going to get rock candy these days? I mean, you know, at any, at any like, you know, kid's candy store... Yeah, but I live in Oxford, Mississippi. There's no kid candy store anymore. Then make your own. It's not that hard to make. Yeah, well, that's that's fair. I, you I know, what, just use kids. a sugar. I'm just going to use a little sugar cube. Which or I got here's it. an idea: just make simple syrup, which is what we do now, instead of dissolving rock candy in our rye whiskey. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So, uh, oh, and there's things uh, like sake in uh, Japan that are wine adjacent. 
Sure. I mean, even though it's called rice wine, though, sake is actually made in a process more similar to beer, which yeah. makes sense since it's derived from a grain. So, uh, yeah, the, the idea that wine is only wine made from grapes, well, that's essentially just a prejudice that comes to us from yeah. Europe and America. Grape right. wine has been seen as a commodity for a long time and has been a status symbol for millennia. People from areas that didn't naturally produce a great deal of grape wine came to want the drink as a way of demonstrating wealth mm-hmm. and of being associated with the perceived sophistication of wine-producing Mediterranean cultures. Right. Um, and, you know, in America especially, there's also that kind of, you know, European cultural envy. Yeah. Uh, think of Thomas Jefferson having crates of wine shipped back to America as a way of kind of keeping up his reputation for being a cultural European style American. Mm-hmm. As if American uh, wine wasn't good enough. Well, at the time, it was not. That's the thing. Uh but other wines, uh, other non-grape wines, I mean, uh, were still being consumed all around the world. Uh, berry wines are made all over the place. Fruit wines, right, can be made from whichever local crops are available. I actually, while researching this, learned about a banana wine that's been made in East Africa for several hundred years, which I am definitely going to try to make. I'm going to warn you against that just because I have a very good friend in Ohio who made a banana beer under a similar kind of like research mm-hmm. interest. Um, and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't give the stuff away. It was not, <laughs> not great. Well, so I mean, I, I know there's banana, there's that banana bread uh, wine of uh, beer. Uh, that's supposed to be pretty good. Uh, but no, I want to try this. Uh, okay. Well, good luck with that. It's, it's an experiment. <laughs> damn it. It doesn't have to be edible. Okay. Well, just don't make a Potable. big batch. So, <laughs> Scandinavians are familiar with making fruit wines. And and since we're talking about a period of history when Northern Europeans weren't distilling liquor, the mm. fruit wines were probably the most alcoholic drinks that they could produce domestically. Well, and not just domestically, right? They could make it when traveling as well. Yeah, we can go back to the saga of the Greenlanders for that. Yeah. Oh, yes. The uh, Turkey, the drunken German from the introduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The recap of that story is that during an expedition in the new land of Vinland, Leif Eriksson suddenly realized that a member of his crew was missing from their camp. Leif was particularly upset to lose the man, a German named Turker, because, well, he was an old family friend. Mm-hmm. But just as Leif began to organize a search party, Turker wanders back into camp, all red-faced and speaking quickly in a language no one could understand. Probably German. Yeah, probably. Uh, it took a while for Turker to calm down. and Calm down, i.e. sober up. Yes. Well, yes, it takes a while. Uh, But when he does, he explains that he's been making wine in the woods since his people have long known how to make wine. Everyone's very excited about this news, and Leif makes a point of bringing back some of the berry plants and the wine on the return voyage. Right. Unfortunately, and I've always thought this was a problem with that story, the author never mentions what happens to those when the ship gets back to Greenland. Yeah, and for that matter... a great deal of interest in that. I think so, yeah. But for we don't also we also don't get any information about Turker and what happens to him. Mm, that's true. Uh, but since we know he's German, we can probably guess that his knowledge of winemaking would include berry wines more so than grape wines. Right. I mean, we've since established. I mean, okay. I say we. The work of Helga and Anastinga Ingstad in the 1960s and 70s established that Leif's settlement was at Lansameta on the northern tip of Newfoundland, and there are 
definitely ground berries and bush growing berries of various types growing there in the 21st century and almost certainly growing back then as in at least as great quantities. Yeah. Tolkien probably wouldn't have needed to go far from camp to make his secret booze is what you're suggesting. Right. And well, and his quote suggests that, right? I only went a little further than you. Uh, yeah, I, I think I've told the story before about learning to make prison yard wine at summer camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Turkir is doing sounds like it was probably kind of the same thing. Uh-huh. Uh, now, the main reason, or at least a reason, that people hadn't found the settlement site before that, before the 1960s, was that they were so fixated on the idea that the Vin part of the name Vinland must have meant wine, and specifically wine from grapes. Yeah. See, grapes don't naturally grow that far north in North America. And so previous efforts to find the place have been focused hundreds of miles south. Yeah. We did a whole episode about this a couple of years ago. It's the one we uh, recorded up by you, John, right before Mm -hmm. COVID shut down travel in 2020. In fact, I I remember there was a few cases in Boston uh, when we we went up and it was the very beginning of the Mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic. Yep. Though we were very lucky that our events didn't turn into spreader events. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's that's the talk where we got our crocheted mini-me's also. Yes, that's right. Thanks, Danielle. The point is that if you're not married to the idea of grapes, wine is a surprisingly available option. It was probably enjoyed casually in a lot of places a lot of the time. Yeah, there are even a number of animals that eat fermented fruit. Uh, They may not be doing it on purpose, but it's clearly not difficult to get fruit to become alcohol. Sure. Uh, But wine, I mean, grape, grape wine enjoys this status symbol nature. Uh, There's also, of course, the place for it in Christianity as a locum for Christ's blood in the Mass, which probably lent a sociocultural legitimacy to wine as a beverage, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, that created its own problem in the North. Yeah. Well, we just established that wine was partly seen as classy because it was in scarce supply. Exactly. Churches in the North struggled with this problem of sourcing wine for religious services. Uh, Rodriguez has this great excerpt from a letter written by Pope Gregory IX to Archbishop Sigurd of Nidaros in 1237. Your brotherhood inquiring about a certain deceiving of the faith under the appearance of piety, by which beer or even another drink might be offered in the place of wine, since wine is hardly or never to be found in those regions, so we answer that it is not properly done, since the sacrament ought to be made holy in the manner of visible bread of grain or wheat and wine of grapes in which the word of God is consecrated through the office of the priest, because without doubt these sustain the true flesh and blood. Nevertheless, blessed bread might be able to be given to the people in need. Now, in a 14th century charter, Instructions are given for watering down the wine used in services, so that, as Rodriguez puts it, at least a taste of the gift of kings, wine, was present every time the Eucharist was celebrated. Now, I have a couple things that I want to say here. Yeah. First, having done uh, a fair amount of research about religion in early Christian Iceland, Mm -hmm. I can tell you that if you're looking for some entertaining reading, the (laughs) letters exchanged between the Pope— and the archbishops of Nidaros oh, about Iceland God. in particular. The exasperation 
of the yes. popes. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. Oh, it's they're great. they're always chiding. And when the yep. and then the really good stuff is when the uh the archbishops of Nidros have to communicate with the bishops mm-hmm. of Iceland <laughs> and say, I don't know what you animals are doing over there, yep. <laughs> but you need to get your stuff on get get your stuff together. It's worth remembering there was actually a bishop of Iceland who when asked who he would name as a successor, said, there's no one I hate enough. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I, I mean, mean it's, it's really good stuff. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so if you've got some free time, check that out. The second right. thing that I, I find interesting about that quote you just mm-hmm. read, uh, where they're complaining about you can't use another drink in place of wine. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, John. I, I'm mm-hmm. no Catholic, but... The idea is that the drink that you present initially is blessed and it becomes the blood of Christ. Correct. Therefore, it shouldn't matter what it was at the beginning because it's a miracle. Correct? Um, I think you're getting not really confused, but you're failing to see the importance of appearance and spectacle in the Mass. Uh, you sound like a Lutheran, John. Um uh, no, no, not really. Just uh, just a former Catholic who's a little bitter. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> uh, no, it's it is also worth noting. Uh, this is, would be especially true in a medieval church where the parishioners wouldn't even see the miracle of faith, right? Wouldn't see right. the transformation moment. It would be behind the rood screen, and so it's it it makes it even more odd that they would have been sort of sticklers for the grape wine. Yeah, but there yeah. it is. They, the idea was that you had to make this as close as possible to the Last Supper. I that, wonder if if it's a money making scheme where the you know the the medieval Catholic wow. Church has their own brand of 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 wine that they 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 need they need the Icelanders and the the Norwegians to buy, right? <laughs> so it's like no 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 you can't use anything else. You've got to use the official wine you of know, the Catholic Church. Um, you know, I was a uh, uh, a sexton at a church for a while. Uh, well, that's where you got your last in name, college. right? Right, right. Uh, but a friend and I uh, decided that we we came up with a uh, a product uh, because we learned that you know there's a catalog where you can buy uh, the the wafers for communion, uh-huh. uh, and we decided that we wanted to come out with a new brand of Jesus crackers uh, because <laughs> we had this idea of a motto, a slogan: "Savor the flavor of the Savior." Uh, and we were going to come out with fishes and loaves flavor, uh, which <laughs> lasts all day. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. And that's why you'll be seeing John. Well, that's one of the reasons you'll be seeing John in hell. There are a was, lot of other reasons, I was going to say, too. it's, yeah, there's probably a list <laughs> that's somewhere. That's one of the least reasons, but he'll be there. You'll see him. Don't worry. <laughs> I hope that God can enjoy a joke. <laughs> So uh, Sigurd has learned about priests under his authority who have been using beer. Uh, so to get back to this story, yeah. Sigurd has learned about priests under his authority who have been using beer for the blood of Christ in rituals. Right. Sacrilegious. Uh, I mean, forget the problem of having to pay a high price for it. In this letter, it's being framed as due to the difficulty of getting wine in Norway at all. Yeah. Beer or another drink, whatever's available. Right. Uh, one the archbishop didn't name in his letter. It's tempting to think that might be mead, uh, but either way, the Pope's not having it. No, no. Or, or in, is this part of a wider crackdown by the papacy, right? Mm-hmm. And we know the papacy likes their crackdowns in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, are priests getting lax with the material components for the mass ritual? Is that something that's going on? I mean, this this seems like a question for the Pontifex folks. 
Ooh, right. Hey, uh, Bree and Fry, when you get to Gregory the Ninth, can we give you a call about this? Indeed. Uh, if anyone doesn't know about it already, Pontifax is one of our sister podcasts in the RexPod family. Uh, Bree and Fry are covering all the popes of the Catholic Church. They're over 100 popes deep already, but I don't think they've gotten to Gregory the Ninth yet. Yeah. Well, they, they, like everyone else, puts us to shame in terms of producing episodes quickly. I know. Yeah. Well, so there's also a Graugos law about this that's been read as admitting to the practice of substituting other drinks. It's a law that sets the price to be paid by priests for wine. And it says, if they want to have wine and wheat meal, and that if, if they want wine, mm-hmm. it's been argued that that means that they didn't always use wine because it might not have been available. Right. Of course, I mean, that might also just be a way of saying when they need to buy wine. Oh, well, it might. Yeah. But when you put it with the letter from Gregory, there does seem to be something going on. Mm. But clearly wine was still understood to be the best choice, the right choice, if a choice is available. Hmm. So wine's rise through its significance to Christianity seems to have had a depressive effect on the drinking of mead, which, of course, had strong associations with pre-Christian life and culture. Yeah, like the Kvasir myth. Like that. Uh, the the move to push aristocratic wine at the expense of plebeian pagan mead probably explains why Odin's mythology by the 13th century is, is said that he drinks only wine, even though he's got that mead fountain of a goat for his men. In fact, Odin is said in the Eddas to survive exclusively on wine. The Grimnismal, the in the Poetic Edda, includes a stanza, Geri and Freki... The one torn by war feeds, the war father known widely of old. But on wine alone does the weapon-decked one, Odin, feed forever. So, Geri and Freki are the wolves of Odin, just as Hugin and Munin are Odin's ravens, and their food is the meat from the slain. Uh, so, the point is that although Odin provides meat for his animals and mead for his men, he himself subsists on wine alone. No doubt with his pinky sticking out to be extra fancy. Oh, sure. That, that's how I think of Odin. That is, uh, I guess, you know, just because I'm exhausted now. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's say that's the story of what Saga Age people were drinking. Yeah. So obviously, as we said at the beginning, this is going to be a two-parter. Yeah. The second half, which we'll be posting in a couple of weeks... We'll cover what Vikings did with all this booze once they made it, how they drank, when they drank, where and why they drank. Well, I think we know why they drank. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously there are certain universals involved there. Yeah, but the uh, the rest of it sounds good. In fact, now that we're at the end of the episode, I feel comfortable saying that I wasn't really that excited about this episode, but the next one, boom, that one's going to be, that's where it's at. <laughs> Great. Now that you've... Now that you've really undercut everything we just did. Uh, I mean, if you've wasted all your time oh, listening to the, the, now, the tripe that we were spinning dare there. You. No, no. The tripe is what's used to make rennet. We covered this. <laughs> uh, anyway, if anyone wants to do further research on this topic, we'll post a bunch of possible resources for you to look at. Uh, and if any of you have experience with making alcohol using medieval methods, or if you have any questions for us to try to answer in the next episode, get in touch.
Yeah. Uh, you can find us pretty much where you'd expect. You can email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us on Facebook or Instagram where we are Podcast. You can join us on Twitter where we are Pod. Or you can check our WordPress blog, which is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. And now, of course, we've got a Discord page, which is shaping up to be the go-to place for conversation with John and Andy and the friends of Sagathing. Uh, there we have all kinds of conversations and yep. questions about the sagas. Yep. And if, uh, and if those don't work, you can buy us around at any bar. Literally any bar. It summons us. But not like a bad Candyman thing, right? No, 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 no. More Field of Dreams. If you pour it, we will come. Lovely. That's got to do it for us now. We'll be back soon. Bye for now. Uh, dandelion wine was a medicinal. Medicinal. Dandelion wine was a medicinal paralyzer. <laughs> no, that was like that was so much earlier. <laughs> but Leif realized that his companion was pleased about something. After a while, Turkir spoke in Norse. I only went a bit further than the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's good. That was a good voice, though. <laughs> I only went to... Accent. Oh, Dan- dandelion <laughs> wine was a medicinal drink for a long time.